Section 17 of How to Tell a Story and Other Essays by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How to Tell a Story and Other Essays by Mark Twain. Chapter 12. Concerning the Jews. Some months ago I published a magazine article descriptive of a remarkable scene in the imperial parliament in Vienna. Since then I have received from Jews in America several letters of inquiry. They were difficult letters to answer, for they were not very definite. But at last I received a definite one. It is from a lawyer, and he really asks the questions which the other writers probably believed they were asking. By help of this text, I will do the best I can to publicly answer this correspondent, and also the others, at the same time apologizing for having failed to reply privately. The lawyer's letter reads as follows. I have read Stirring Times in Austria. One point in particular is of vital import to not a few thousand people including myself, being a point about which I have often wanted to address a question to some disinterested person. The show of military force in the Austrian Parliament, which precipitated the riots, was not introduced by any Jew. No Jew was a member of that body. No Jewish question was involved in the Ausgleich or in the language proposition. No Jew was insulting anybody. In short, no Jew was doing any mischief toward anybody whatsoever. In fact, the Jews were the only ones of the nineteen different races in Austria which did not have a party. They are absolutely non-participants. Yet in your article you say that in the rioting which followed all classes of people were unanimous only on one thing, viz. in being against the Jews. Now, will you kindly tell me why, in your judgment, the Jews have thus ever been, and are even now, in these days of supposed intelligence, the butt of baseless, vicious animosities. I dare say that for centuries there has been no more quiet, undisturbing, and well-behaving citizens as a class than that same Jew. It seems to me that ignorance and fanaticism cannot alone account for these horrible and unjust persecutions. Tell me, therefore, from your vantage point of cold view, what in your mind is the cause? Can American Jews do anything to correct it, either in America or abroad? Will it ever come to an end? Will a Jew be permitted to live honestly, decently, and peaceably like the rest of mankind? What has become of the golden rule? I will begin by saying that 
if i thought myself prejudiced against the jew i should hold it fairest to leave this subject to a person not crippled in that way but i think i have no such prejudice a few years ago a jew observed to me that there was no uncourteous reference to his people in my books and asked how it happened it happened because the disposition was lacking i am quite sure that bar one i have no race prejudices and i think i have no color prejudices nor caste prejudices nor creed prejudices indeed i know it i can stand any society all that i care to know is that a man is a human being that is enough for me he can't be any worse i have no special regard for satan but i can at least claim that i have no prejudice against him it may even be that i lean a little his way on account of his not having a fair show all religions issue bibles against him and say the most injurious things about him but we never hear his side we have none but the evidence for the prosecution and yet we have rendered the verdict to my mind this is irregular it is un-english it is un-american it is french without this precedent dreyfus could not have been condemned of course satan has some kind of a case it goes without saying it may be a poor one but that is nothing that can be said about any of us as soon as i can get at the facts i will undertake his rehabilitation myself if i can find an unpolitic publisher it is a thing which we ought to be willing to do for any one who is under a cloud we may not pay him reverence for that would be indiscreet but we can at least respect his talents a person who has for untold centuries maintained the imposing position of spiritual head of four-fifths of the human race and political head of the whole of it must be granted the possession of executive abilities of the loftiest order in his large presence the other popes and politicians shrink to midges for the microscope i would like to see him i would rather see him and shake him by the tail than any other member of the european concert in the present paper i shall allow myself to use the word jew as if it stood for both religion and race it is handy and besides that is what the term means to the general world in the above letter one notes these points one the jew is a well-behaved citizen 
to can ignorance and fanaticism alone account for his unjust treatment three can jews do anything to improve the situation four the jews have no party they are non-participants five will the persecution ever come to an end six what has become of the golden rule point number one we must grant the proposition number one for several sufficient reasons the jew is not a disturber of the peace of any country even his enemies will concede that he is not a loafer he is not a sot he is not noisy he is not a brawler nor a rioter he is not quarrelsome in the statistics of crime his presence is conspicuously rare in all countries with murder and other crimes of violence he has but little to do he is a stranger to the hangman in the police court's daily long roll of assaults and drunken disorderlies his name seldom appears that the jewish home is a home in the truest sense is a fact which no one will dispute the family is knitted together by the strongest affections its members show each other every due respect and reverence for the elders is an inviolate law of the house the jew is not a burden on the charities of the state nor of the city these could cease from their functions without affecting him when he is well enough he works when he is incapacitated his own people take care of him and not in a poor and stingy way but with a fine and large benevolence his race is entitled to be called the most benevolent of all the races of men a jewish beggar is not impossible perhaps such a thing may exist but there are few men that can say they have seen that spectacle the jew has been staged in many uncomplimentary forms but so far as i know no dramatist has done him the injustice to stage him as a beggar whenever a jew has real need to beg his people save him from the necessity of doing it the charitable institutions of the jews are supported by jewish money and amply the jews make no noise about it it is done quietly they do not nag and pester and harass us for contributions they give us peace and set us an example an example which we have not found ourselves able to follow for by nature we are not free givers and have to be patiently and persistently hunted down in the interest of the unfortunate these facts 
are all on the credit side of the proposition that the jew is a good and orderly citizen summed up they certify that he is quiet peaceable industrious unaddicted to high crimes and brutal dispositions that his family life is commendable that he is not a burden upon public charities that he is not a beggar that in benevolence he is above the reach of competition these are the very quintessentials of good citizenship if you can add that he is as honest as the average of his neighbors but i think that question is affirmatively answered by the fact that he is a successful business man the basis of successful business is honesty a business cannot thrive where the parties to it cannot trust each other in the matter of numbers the jew counts for little in the overwhelming population of new york but that his honesty counts for much is guaranteed by the fact that the immense wholesale business of broadway from the battery to union square is substantially in his hands i suppose that the most picturesque example in history of a trader's trust in his fellow trader was one where it was not christian trusting christian but christian trusting jew that hessian duke who used to sell his subjects to george the third to fight george washington with got rich at it and by and by when the wars engendered by the french revolution made his throne too warm for him he was obliged to fly the country he was in a hurry and had to leave his earnings behind nine million dollars he had to risk the money with someone without security he did not select a christian but a jew a jew of only modest means but of high character a character so high that it left him lonesome rothschild of frankfurt thirty years later when europe had become quiet and safe again the duke came back from overseas and the jew returned the loan with interest added here is another piece of picturesque history and it reminds us that shabbiness and dishonesty are not the monopoly of any race or creed but are merely human congress passed a bill to pay three hundred and seventy nine dollars and fifty six cents to moses pendergrass of libertyville missouri the story of the reason of this liberality is pathetically interesting and shows the sort of pickle that an honest man may get into who undertakes to do an honest job of work for uncle sam in eighteen eighty six moses pendergrass put in a bid for the contract to carry the mail on the route from knob lick to libertyville and kaufman thirty miles a day 
from July 1, 1887, for one year. He got the postmaster at Knob Lick to write the letter for him, and while Moses intended that his bid should be four hundred dollars, his scribe carelessly made it four dollars. Moses got the contract and did not find out about the mistake until the end of the first quarter when he got his first pay. When he found at what rate he was working, he was sorely cast down and opened communication with the post office department. The department informed him that he must either carry out his contract or throw it up, and that if he threw it up, his bondsmen would have to pay the government $1,459.85 damages. So Moses carried out his contract, walked thirty miles every weekday for a year, and carried the mail, and received for his labor four dollars, or to be accurate, six dollars and eighty-four cents for the route being extended after his bid was accepted, the pay was proportionately increased. Now, after ten years, a bill was finally passed to pay Moses the difference between what he earned in that unlucky year and what he received. The son, which tells the above story, says that bills were introduced in three or four congresses, for Moses's relief, and that committees repeatedly investigated his claim. It took six congresses, containing in their persons the compressed virtues of seventy millions of people, and cautiously and carefully giving expression to those virtues in the fear of God and the next election, eleven years to find out some way to cheat a fellow Christian out of about thirteen dollars on his honestly executed contract, and out of nearly three hundred dollars due him on its enlarged terms, and they succeeded. During the same time they paid out one billion dollars in pensions, a third of it unearned and undeserved. This indicates a splendid all-around competency in theft, for it starts with farthings and works its industries all the way up to shiploads. It may be possible that the Jews can beat this, but the man that bets on it is taking chances. The Jew has his other side, he has some discreditable ways, though he has not a monopoly of them, because he cannot get entirely rid of vexatious Christian competition. We have seen that he seldom transgresses the laws against crimes of violence. Indeed, his dealings with courts are almost restricted to matters connected with commerce. He has a reputation for various small forms of cheating and for practicing oppressive usury, 
and for burning himself out to get the insurance and arranging for cunning contracts which leave him an exit but lock the other man in and for smart evasions which find him safe and comfortable just within the strict letter of the law when court and jury know very well that he has violated the spirit of it he is a frequent and faithful and capable officer in the civil service but he is charged with an unpatriotic disinclination to stand by the flag as a soldier like the christian quaker now if you offset these discreditable features by the creditable ones summarized in a preceding paragraph beginning with the words these facts are all on the credit side and strike a balance what must the verdict be this i think that the merits and demerits being fairly weighed and measured on both sides the christian can claim no superiority over the jew in the matter of good citizenship yet in all countries from the dawn of history the jew has been persistently and implacably hated and with frequency persecuted point number two can fanaticism alone account for this years ago i used to think that it was responsible for nearly all of it but latterly i have come to think that this was an error indeed it is now my conviction that it is responsible for hardly any of it in this connection i call to mind genesis chapter forty seven we have all thoughtfully or unthoughtfully read the pathetic story of the years of plenty and the years of famine in egypt and how joseph with that opportunity made a corner in broken hearts and the crusts of the poor and human liberty a corner whereby he took a nation's money all away to the last penny took a nation's livestock all away to the last hoof took a nation's land away to the last acre then took the nation itself buying it for bread man by man woman by woman child by child till all were slaves a corner which took everything left nothing a corner so stupendous that by comparison with it the most gigantic corners in subsequent history are but baby things for it dealt in hundreds of millions of bushels and its profits were reckonable by hundreds of millions of dollars and it was a disaster so crushing that its effects have not wholly disappeared from egypt to-day more than three thousand years after the event is it presumable that the eye of egypt was upon joseph the foreign jew all this time i think it likely was it friendly we must doubt it 
was joseph establishing a character for his race which would survive long in egypt and in time would his name come to be familiarly used to express that character like shylock's it is hardly to be doubted let us remember that this was centuries before the crucifixion i wish to come down eighteen hundred years later and refer to a remark made by one of the latin historians i read it in a translation many years ago and it comes back to me now with force it was alluding to a time when people were still living who could have been the savior in the flesh christianity was so new that the people of rome had hardly heard of it and had but confused notions of what it was the substance of the remark was this some christians were persecuted in rome through error they being mistaken for jews the meaning seems plain these pagans had nothing against christians but they were quite ready to persecute jews for some reason or other they hated a jew before they even knew what a christian was may i not assume then that the persecution of jews is a thing which antedates christianity and was not born of christianity i think so what was the origin of the feeling when i was a boy in the back settlements of the mississippi valley where a gracious and beautiful sunday school simplicity and unpracticality prevailed the yankee citizen of the new england states was hated with a splendid energy but religion had nothing to do with it in a trade the yankee was held to be about five times the match of the westerner his shrewdness his insight his judgment his knowledge his enterprise and his formidable cleverness in applying these forces were frankly confessed and most competently cursed in the cotton states after the war the simple and ignorant negroes made the crops for the white planter on shares the jew came down in force set up shop on the plantation supplied all the negroes wants on credit and at the end of the season was proprietor of the negro's share of the present crop and of part of his share of the next one before long the whites detested the jew and it is doubtful if the negro loved him the jew is being legislated out of russia the reason is not concealed the movement was instituted because the christian peasant and villager stood no chance against his commercial abilities he was always ready to lend money on a crop and sell vodka and other necessaries of life on credit while the crop was growing when settlement day came he owned the crop 
and next year or year after he owned the farm like joseph in the dull and ignorant england of john's time everybody got into debt to the jew he gathered all lucrative enterprises into his hands he was the king of commerce he was ready to be helpful in all profitable ways he even financed crusades for the rescue of the sepulchre to wipe out his account with the nation and restore business to its natural and incompetent channels he had to be banished the realm for the like reasons spain had to banish him four hundred years ago and austria about a couple of centuries later in all the ages christian europe has been obliged to curtail his activities if he entered upon a mechanical trade the christian had to retire from it if he set up as a doctor he was the best one and he took the business if he exploited agriculture the other farmers had to get at something else since there was no way to successfully compete with him in any vocation the law had to step in and save the christian from the poorhouse trade after trade was taken away from the jew by statute till practically none was left he was forbidden to engage in agriculture he was forbidden to practice law he was forbidden to practice medicine except among jews he was forbidden the handicrafts even the seats of learning and the schools of science had to be closed against this tremendous antagonist still almost bereft of employments he found ways to make money even ways to get rich also ways to invest his takings well for usury was not denied him in the hard conditions suggested the jew without brains could not survive and the jew with brains had to keep them in good training and well sharpened up or starve ages of restriction to the one tool which the law was not able to take from him his brain have made that tool singularly competent ages of compulsory disuse of his hands have atrophied them and he never uses them now this history has a very very commercial look a most sordid and practical commercial look the business aspect of a chinese cheap labor crusade religious prejudices may account for one part of it but not for the other nine protestants have persecuted catholics but they did not take their livelihoods away from them the catholics have persecuted the protestants with bloody and awful bitterness but they never closed agriculture and the handicrafts against them why was that that has the candid look of genuine religious persecution not a trade-union boycott in a 
religious disguise. The Jews are harried and obstructed in Austria and Germany, and lately in France. But England and America give them an open field, and yet survive. Scotland offers them an unembarrassed field, too, but there are not many takers. There are a few Jews in Glasgow, and one in Aberdeen, but that is because they can't earn enough to get away. The Scotch pay themselves that compliment, but it is authentic. I feel convinced that the crucifixion has not much to do with the world's attitude toward the Jew, that the reasons for it are older than that event, as suggested by Egypt's experience and by Rome's regret for having persecuted an unknown quantity called a Christian under the mistaken impression that she was merely persecuting a Jew. Merely a Jew. A skinned eel who was used to it, presumably. I am persuaded that in Russia, Austria, and Germany nine-tenths of the hostility to the Jew comes from the average Christian's inability to compete successfully with the average Jew in business, in either straight business or the questionable sort. In Berlin a few years ago I read a speech which frankly urged the expulsion of the Jews from Germany, and the agitator's reason was as frank as his proposition. It was this, that eighty-five percent of the successful lawyers of Berlin were Jews, and that about the same percentage of the great and lucrative businesses of all sorts in Germany were in the hands of the Jewish race. Isn't it an amazing confession? It was but another way of saying that in a population of forty-eight millions, of whom only five hundred thousand were registered as Jews, eighty-five percent of the brains and honesty of the whole was lodged in the Jews. I must insist upon the honesty. It is an essential of successful business, taken by and large. Of course it does not rule out rascals entirely, even among Christians, but it is a good working rule, nevertheless. The speaker's figures may have been inexact, but the motive of persecution stands out as clear as day. The man claimed that in Berlin the banks, the newspapers, the theaters, the great mercantile, shipping, mining, and manufacturing interests, the big army and city contracts, the tramways, and pretty much all other properties of high value, and also the small businesses, were in the hands of the Jews. He said the Jew was pushing the Christian to the wall all along the line, that it was all a Christian could do to scrape together a living, and that the Jew must be banished, and soon, 
there was no other way of saving the christian here in vienna last autumn an agitator said that all these disastrous details were true of austria-hungary also and in fierce language he demanded the expulsion of the jews when politicians come out without a blush and read the baby act in this frank way unrebuked it is a very good indication that they have a market back of them and know where to fish for votes you note the crucial point of the mentioned agitation the argument is that the christian cannot compete with the jew and that hence his very bread is in peril to human beings this is a much more hate-inspiring thing than is any detail connected with religion with most people of a necessity bread and meat take first rank religion second i am convinced that the persecution of the jew is not due in any large degree to religious prejudice no the jew is a money-getter and in getting his money he is a very serious obstruction to less capable neighbors who are on the same quest i think that that is the trouble in estimating worldly values the jew is not shallow but deep with precocious wisdom he found out in the morning of time that some men worship rank some worship heroes some worship power some worship god and that over these ideals they dispute and cannot unite but that they all worship money so he made it the end and aim of his life to get it he was at it in egypt thirty-six centuries ago he was at it in rome when that christian got persecuted by mistake for him he has been at it ever since the cost to him has been heavy his success has made the whole human race his enemy but it has paid for it has brought him envy and that is the only thing which men will sell both soul and body to get he long ago observed that a millionaire commands respect a two millionaire homage a multi-millionaire the deepest deeps of adoration we all know that feeling we have seen it express itself we have noticed that when the average man mentions the name of a multi-millionaire he does it with that mixture in his voice of awe and reverence and lust which burns in a frenchman's eye when it falls on another man's centime point number four the jews have no party they are non-participants perhaps you have let the secret out and given yourself away 
it seems hardly a credit to the race that it is able to say that, or to you, sir, that you can say it without remorse, more that you should offer it as a plea against maltreatment, injustice, and oppression. Who gives the Jew the right? Who gives any race the right to sit still in a free country and let somebody else look after its safety? The oppressed Jew was entitled to all pity in the former times under brutal autocracies, for he was weak and friendless, and had no way to help his case. But he has ways now, and he has had them for a century. But I do not see that he has tried to make serious use of them. When the revolution set him free in France, it was an act of grace, the grace of other people. He does not appear in it as a helper. I do not know that he helped when England set him free. Among the twelve sane men of France, who have stepped forward with great Zola at their head to fight and win, I hope and believe. Note, the article was written in the summer of 1898. Editor. The battle for the most infamously misused Jew of modern times, do you find a great or rich or illustrious Jew helping? In the United States he was created free in the beginning. He did not need to help, of course. In Austria and Germany and France he has a vote. But of what considerable use is it to him? He doesn't seem to know how to apply it to the best effect. With all his splendid capacities and all his fat wealth, he is today not politically important in any country. In America, as early as 1854, the ignorant Irish hod-carrier who had a spirit of his own and a way of exposing it to the weather made it apparent to all that he must be politically reckoned with. Yet fifteen years before that we hardly knew what an Irishman looked like. As an intelligent force, and numerically, he has always been away down, but he has governed the country just the same. It was because he was organized. It made his vote valuable, in fact, essential. You will say the Jew is everywhere numerically feeble. That is nothing to the point with the Irishman's history for an object lesson. But I am coming to your numerical feebleness presently. In all parliamentary countries you could no doubt elect Jews to the legislatures, and even one member in such a body is sometimes a force which counts. How deeply have you concerned yourselves about this in Austria, France, and Germany, or even in America for that matter? You remark that the Jews were not 
to blame for the riots in this Reichsrath here, and you add with satisfaction that there wasn't one in that body. That is not strictly correct. If it were, would it not be in order for you to explain it and apologize for it, not try to make a merit of it? But I think that the Jew was by no means in as large force there as he ought to have been with his chances. Austria opens the suffrage to him on fairly liberal terms, and it must surely be his own fault that he is so much in the background politically. As to your numerical weakness, I mentioned some figures a while ago, 500,000, as the Jewish population of Germany. I will add some more. Six million in Russia, five million in Austria, 250,000 in the United States. I take them from memory. I read them in the Encyclopedia Britannica about ten years ago. Still, I am entirely sure of them. If those statistics are correct, my argument is not as strong as it ought to be as concerns America, but it still has strength. It is plenty strong enough as concerns Austria, for ten years ago five million was nine percent of the empire's population. The Irish would govern the kingdom of heaven if they had a strength there like that. I have some suspicions. I got them at second hand, but they have remained with me these ten or twelve years. When I read in the E.B. that the Jewish population of the United States was 250,000, I wrote the editor and explained to him that I was personally acquainted with more Jews than that in my country, and that his figures were without doubt a misprint for twenty-five million. I also added that I was personally acquainted with that many there, but that was only to raise his confidence in me, for it was not true. His answer miscarried, and I never got it. But I went around talking about the matter, and people told me they had reason to suspect that, for business reasons, many Jews whose dealings were mainly with the Christians did not report themselves as Jews in the census. It looked plausible. It looks plausible yet. Look at the city of New York, and look at Boston, and Philadelphia, and New Orleans, and Chicago, and Cincinnati, and San Francisco. How your race swarms in those places, and everywhere else in America, down to the least little village. Read the signs on the marts of commerce and on the shops. Goldstein, gold stone. Edelstein, precious stone. Blumenthal, flower veil. 
Rosenthal, Rosevale, Wilschenduft, Violet Odor, Singvogel, Songbird, Rosenzweig, Rose Branch, and all the amazing list of beautiful and enviable names which Prussia and Austria glorified you with so long ago. It is another instance of Europe's coarse and cruel persecution of your race. Not that it was coarse and cruel to outfit it with pretty and poetical names like those, but that it was coarse and cruel to make it pay for them, or else take such hideous and often indecent names that today their owners never use them, or if they do, only on official papers. And it was the many, not the few, who got the odious names, they being too poor to bribe the officials to grant them better ones. Now why was the race renamed? I have been told that in Prussia it was given to using fictitious names and often changing them so as to beat the tax-gatherer, escape military service, and so on, and that finally the idea was hit upon of furnishing all the inmates of a house with one and the same surname, and then holding the house responsible right along for those inmates and accountable for any disappearances that might occur. It made the Jews keep track of each other for self-interest's sake, and saved the government the trouble. In Austria the renaming was merely done because the Jews in some newly acquired regions had no surnames, but were mostly named Abraham and Moses, and therefore the tax-gatherer could not tell t'other from which, and was likely to lose his reason over the matter. The renaming was put into the hands of the War Department, and a charming mess the graceless young lieutenants made of it. To them a Jew was of no sort of consequence, and they labeled the race in a way to make the angels weep. As an example, take these two, Abraham Belish and Shmuel Kotbdamd, called from Namen's Studien by Karl Emil Franzos, M.T. If that explanation of how the Jews of Prussia came to be renamed is correct, if it is true that they fictitiously registered themselves to gain certain advantages, it may possibly be true that in America they refrain from registering themselves as Jews to fend off the damaging prejudices of the Christian customer. I have no way of knowing whether this notion is well-founded or not. There may be other and better ways of explaining why only that poor little 250,000 of our Jews got into the encyclopedia. I may, of course, be mistaken, but I am strongly of the opinion 
that we have an immense Jewish population in America. Point number three. Can Jews do anything to improve the situation? I think so. If I may make a suggestion without seeming to be trying to teach my grandmother how to suck eggs, I will offer it. In our days we have learned the value of combination. We apply it everywhere, in railway systems, in trusts, in trade unions, in salvation armies, in minor politics, in major politics, in European concerts. Whatever our strength may be, big or little, we organize it. We have found out that that is the only way to get the most out of it that is in it. We know the weakness of individual sticks and the strength of the concentrated faggot. Suppose you try a scheme like this, for instance. In England and America, put every Jew on the census book as a Jew, in case you have not been doing that. Get up volunteer regiments composed of Jews solely, and, when the drum beats, fall in and go to the front, so as to remove the reproach that you have few Massenas among you, and that you feed on the country but don't like to fight for it. Next, in politics, organize your strength, band together, and deliver the casting vote where you can, and where you can't compel as good terms as possible. You huddle to yourselves already in all countries, but you huddle to no sufficient purpose, politically speaking. You do not seem to be organized, except for your charities. There you are omnipotent. There you compel your due of recognition. You do not have to beg for it. It shows what you can do when you band together for a definite purpose. And then, from America and England, you can encourage your race in Austria, France, and Germany, and materially help it. It was a pathetic tale that was told by a poor Jew in Galicia a fortnight ago during the riots after he had been raided by the Christian peasantry and despoiled of everything he had. He said his vote was of no value to him, and he wished he could be excused from casting it, for indeed casting it was a sure damage to him, since no matter which party he voted for, the other party would come straight and take its revenge out of him. Nine percent of the population of the empire, these Jews, and apparently they cannot put a plank into any candidate's platform. If you will send our Irish lads over here, I think they will organize your race and change the aspect of the Reichsrach. You seem to think that the Jews take no hand in politics here, that they are absolutely non-participants. I am assured by men competent to speak that this is a very large error, 
and that the Jews are exceedingly active in politics all over the empire, but that they scatter their work and their votes among the numerous parties, and thus lose the advantages to be had by concentration. I think that in America they scatter too, but you know more about that than I do. Speaking of concentration, Dr. Herschel has a clear insight into the value of that. Have you heard of his plan? He wishes to gather the Jews of the world together in Palestine with a government of their own, under the suzerainty of the Sultan, I suppose. At the convention of Bern last year there were delegates from everywhere, and the proposal was received with decided favor. I am not the Sultan, and I am not objecting. But if that concentration of the cunningest brains in the world was going to be made in a free country, bar Scotland, I think it would be politic to stop it. It will not be well to let that race find out its strength. If the horses knew theirs, we should not ride any more. Point number five. Will the persecution of the Jews ever come to an end? On the score of religion, I think it has already come to an end. On the score of race prejudice and trade, I have the idea that it will continue. That is, here and there, in spots about the world, where a barbarous ignorance and a sort of mere animal civilization prevail, but I do not think that elsewhere the Jew need now stand in any fear of being robbed and raided. Among the high civilizations he seems to be very comfortably situated indeed and to have more than his proportionate share of the prosperities going. It has that look in Vienna. I suppose the race prejudice cannot be removed, but he can stand that. It is no particular matter. By his make and ways he is substantially a foreigner, wherever he may be and even the angels dislike a foreigner. I am using this word foreigner in the German sense, stranger. Nearly all of us have an antipathy to a stranger, even of our own nationality. We pile gripsacks in a vacant seat to keep him from getting it, and a dog goes further and does as a savage would, challenges him on the spot. The German dictionary seems to make no distinction between a stranger and a foreigner. In its view, a stranger is a foreigner, a sound position, I think. You will always be, by ways and habits and predilections, substantially strangers, foreigners, wherever you are, and that will probably keep the race prejudice against you alive. But you were the favorites of heaven originally, and your manifold and 
unfair prosperities convince me that you have crowded back into that snug place again. Here is an incident that is significant. Last week, in Vienna, a hailstorm struck the prodigious central cemetery and made wasteful destruction there. In the Christian part of it, according to the official figures, 621 window panes were broken, more than 900 singing birds were killed, five great trees and many small ones were torn to shreds and the shreds scattered far and wide by the wind. The ornamental plants and other decorations of the graves were ruined, and more than a hundred tomb-lanterns shattered, and it took the cemetery's whole force of three hundred laborers more than three days to clear away the storm's wreckage. In the report occurs this remark, and in its italics you can hear it grit its Christian teeth. Dass lediglich die israelitische Abteilung des Friedhofes vom Hagelwetter gänzlich verschont worden war. Not a hailstone hit the Jewish reservation. Such nepotism makes me tired. Point number six. What has become of the golden rule? It exists, it continues to sparkle, and is well taken care of. It is Exhibit A in the church's assets, and we pull it out every Sunday and give it an airing. But you are not permitted to try to smuggle it into this discussion where it is irrelevant and would not feel at home. It is strictly religious furniture, like an acolyte, or a contribution plate, or any of those things. It has never been intruded into business, and Jewish persecution is not a religious passion. It is a business passion. To conclude, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but one percent of the human race. It suggests a nebulous, dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also away out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all the ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, 
filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? End of chapter 12 Concerning the Jews Read by John Greenman